0: Good morning everyone, today's Bible reading is from Esther chapter 4 verse 1 to chapter 5 verse 14. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, fasting, weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on him instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Tathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend to her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Haythak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy And plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for many, any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned to the king has but one law that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you are alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for all the Jews will rise from another place, that you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. On the third day Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace, in front of all the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half a kingdom it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now what is your petition? It will be given to you, and what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be granted. Esther replied, My petition and my request is this, If the king regards me with my favor, and it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honoured him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Have a pole set up, reaching to a height of 50 cubits, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up.
1: Hi everyone. Today we're going to look at Esther's chapter 4 and 5, two chapters filled with three scenes. You can follow along on your outline under the notes tab or in the description of the service as well. So just a quick overview summary where we're going. Scene 1 is all about the pressure of the situation. How Mordecai persuades Esther to act as they come to grips with a death warrant against the Jewish people. Scene 2 is Esther enacting a plan to try and stop this. However, tension mounts in scene 3 as Haman forms another plan of his own, this time to kill Mordecai by mourning the next day. So, as we begin, I have a question for you on the top of your handout for you to think about. Here's the question. What are some defining moments in your life? What are some defining moments in your life? You may say some big things like your marriage or having children or getting a driver's license, finishing study, uh, or even your relationship with God if you're a Christian. Or you might say, no, actually, look, it's some hard things. They've really defined me. My divorce, the passing of a loved one, losing a job, a mental health challenge that you're facing. Financial stress? You might say these moments have defined me as well. Or you might say, actually, no, it's just the little things. You know, consistency over time brings results, and these are the things that have defined me my diet, my exercise choices, the screen amount of time I spend on my screen, spending time with my family and kids every day, or even how often you read and pray. No, they've defined me. If I reflect on my own life, I can recall three moments that have defined me. Uh, first one was I was a teenager, wasn't a Christian, riding my bike, middle of the road, no helmet and a car just swerved, I almost got hit by it. And at the moment, I remember saying, thank you, God. And as it came up my mouth, I was confused. Why did I say that? I didn't have any thought of God or care for God. I couldn't shake that reaction. Second defining moment after I was a Christian a number of years later, I was out in front of a friend's house on a cold, rainy, foggy night talking to Natasha. We were just friends, weren't dating, weren't married. And I shared with her this feeling I had, this desire to go into vocational ministry and potentially marry this beautiful woman. Didn't tell her that at the time, though. Then three years ago, a Bible verse, John 20, 21. It led me to complete my college degree, finish up my role as a youth pastor, and take a step of faith into a new ministry and season of life. What about you? Maybe you could ask the question of Esther. I wonder what Esther would say was her defining moment in life. Well, I think if we asked her, she would say the events in chapter 4 and 5 of the book of Esther. But you know, Esther's defining moment wasn't a shout of victory or joy, nor did it come with great clarity. It came as a timid girl, confronted with the reality of the situation, reluctantly chose to identify as a Jew and so set the plan for God's redemption in motion. I wonder, how many of you have similar defining moments in your life? More fearful than courageous, more fickle than faith-fueled. So let's start in scene one. Let's see the pressure that Esther and Mordecai were under and how she was persuaded to act. Here's scene one. They open in chapter four with Mordecai. He's having, quite frankly, the worst day of his life. He's lamenting bitterly. He's weeping, uh, sackcloth and ashes he's wearing, uh, all because his people are going to die. But it's not just him, you see. In chapter three, verse three, sorry, it pulls us back to see the whole Jewish population all the Jews are mourning and fasting and weeping over the death decree. Now, why this news of the Jews' soon-to-be execution, genocide, in fact, spread around the kingdom, it hadn't quite made it to Queen Esther. So in verses 4 and 5, she's told about Mordecai. She's in distress that he's in distress. So she brings some clothes and says, "'Please stop, put them on. I don't like seeing you this way.'" He refuses, and a confused Esther then sends Hakath, her friend and servant, to ask, "'Why, Mordecai, why are you so upset?' When Hakath asks what's wrong in, in verse 6, Mordecai word vomits on him. All that's happening, the money, the land, the plan to kill the Jews, Bahamut. And, and, and he just pours out his heart in this emotional plea. And right at the end, he urges Queen Esther. says, Esther, you have to do something. Beg for mercy from the king, please. Now she hears this. She sends a message back to Mordecai that's filled with shock and fear. Look at verse 11 in her reply. She says this. All the king's officials and all the people of the royal providences know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. It's one of those moments in life when you've started to tell someone about a problem you're having, only to have that person hijack the conversation by saying, you think you've got problems. Man, you should see what I have to put up with. And then they they share with you something that's, that's of a minor problem in comparison. Well, that's Esther in verse 11. All she thinks is that our own situation is far worse than Mordecai's because to go to the king when you're not invited, that would be to stare death in the face. And surely, surely, Mordecai, you're not asking me to face death. Moreover, she lets sleep and reminds him that her marriage hasn't been too crash hot lately either. But in the past 30 days, the king has not seen me. I've got no scheduled visit in my diary, Mordecai. What she's saying is that right now, it is not my time to help. I've got my own problems to do with Mordecai. I'm, I'm really sorry, I'll give you some clothes, but that's it. You see, the issue here is that when the king was in the inner court, it was a no-no to approach him unless you was summoned. Royal etiquette said that if you did go to him, unless the king held up the gold scepter, you'll die. In fact, there were only seven people who could go to the king at any time, uh, the historian Herodotus tells us. But you couldn't go to him if you were sleeping with a woman either. Esther wasn't one of those seven, that's the point. Now, look at how fear is ruling Esther's heart. Excuses are being born to justify inaction. Now, at this point, remember, Esther and Mordecai are still communicating back and forth via a messenger. In verse 6 and 9 and 12, Hakkah is the link between the two relaying this dialogue, you see? Then all of a sudden, Mordecai says something that really puts Esther in danger. It forces her hand. Look at verse thirteen. Remember, this isn't a private conversation. He says, Do not think that because you belong to the Jews, that you will escape. And just like that, Hakath now knows she is a Jew. It has been let out. Esther is a Jew. You see, Mordecai's giving her a sobering reality check and then vote fourteen and fifteen. He isn't giving her a motivational speech to pump her up. He's threatening her with the certainty of death. He even says it in verse 14. You will die if you don't do something. Even if the other Jews are sped. Don't think you'll escape because you're the queen. You won't. Rings about Vashti, doesn't it? And Esther, she's shaky and she's confused. As, as scholar John Goldengate comments here, he says, Esther's not a superhero with special powers. She's an abused girl put in a horrible position because of what she is, a beautiful Jew. Fear, hesitation is how Esther reacts to this moment in her life. So she's standing there, life-ordering news, being in a position to do something. She hasn't got it all together. And then Mordecai says something super interesting in verse Verse 14. He says, If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your fathers will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you've come to a royal position for such a time as this. Somehow, in some way, Mordecai has this long-range confidence that death, the death warrant from Haman won't be fulfilled. That relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from somewhere. Now, some have stretched the text here to imply that he's talking about God. But all the evidence suggests that Mordecai isn't actually referring to God at all here. He's simply convinced that someone else will stand up and fight this horrible threat off. So he's not pointing to some veiled, foggy hope in God. I think it's much less spiritual than that, because there's nothing hinting at Mordecai understanding anything deeper than what he says. Someone else will save the people. But then he uses this as a way to snap Esther into action as well. So he puts before the possibility, perhaps you've been made queen for such a time as this. Now again, he's he's simply pointing out all that's happened in her life, all the events that have led up to this point, maybe for this particular reason. And notice that he's not very convinced about this either. He says, who knows? You see, Mordecai isn't certain of God, nor who's going to step up. He can't see that well, and in the moment, the future is as clear as mud. The pattern from Esther isn't that Mordecai's is a super spiritual guy. I think he's just figuring it out as he goes along. Something in that pricks Esther's conscience. And she utters the probably the most famous line in the whole book. I will go to the king even though it is against the law. Verse 16, if I perish, I perish. Now what's really important to understand with that phrase is the word if. If I perish. The if indicates uncertainty. She doesn't know the outcome, does she? But she's willing to die if it will save her people. The question is, though, are we to see this as Esther being courageous and bold? Well, I don't actually think that's the point. See, she's been pressed into this corner. She's already given an excuse not to act. The harsh reality of death is before her, and Mordecai, her cousin, he's in mourning. I think Esther is more resigned than determined here. She realizes she must do something. So she grits her teeth, not joyfully, but with the weight of death and uncertainty on her shoulders, and so says, I will go, and if I die, I die. It's interesting, we find the same expression here in Genesis 43, verse 14. This is where Jacob finally allows Benjamin to go to Egypt with his brothers to see Joseph. This is a painful moment for him, as he allows it to happen, just like Esther. They're determined, but it's a tough, grief-filled decision. Now, I think this is actually more important for us to grasp than seeing a bold, courageous Esther. Why? Well, aren't you and me, when we're pressed in big moments like this, aren't we much less bold and more fickle than we imagine to be? Don't we, too, dance between fear and devotion to God, one moment fully trusting Him, and the next unsure if God is even present with us? Is that not how we act? Do you not make excuses for why we can't do something because take a step of faith, bouncing like a yo-yo all over the place at the times? I know I am. I think we're just as uncertain at times as Esther is here. And we see this too when she asks time for a fast. What she's doing with this is she's creating a space where she can pause, wait, have others rally behind her. She asks for other people to fast with her so that she can form a plan with Mordecai and her attendants as to how they're going to appeal the king to turn back the decree. And we see that. We see the plan enacted soon enough. And, and that's what I think the fast is attending to do. I don't think, again, it's a sign of spirituality. Let me explain. We know that Jews would mingle prayer and fasting together. It was part of their culture, part of their history. It, it was a way to respond to, and to worship God. But we must be hesitant to assume too much here about the prayer. Because prayer isn't mentioned. Note that. It does not say she prayed. She just calls for a fast. Many commentators have suggested that she does pray because it's implicit by the fasting. They would say that it goes together for the Jewish people. But I think that ignores the very pattern of Esther that we've seen. So often in the story, we expect the characters to act this way or that, and they don't. We expect God to show up. He doesn't. And here, we expect her to pray, but we don't read that. The very real, the obvious possibility is that the silence about her praying is exactly the point the author wants to make. Prayer was absent for Esther here. What I think we're to see is that Esther is a flawed person. She's working it out as she goes along with a perfect God behind the scenes, all at work in this mess. And, and prayer should be a part of the rhythm of our life. We can say that, even if it wasn't for Esther. But you know what she does do, and what we do see clearly, is that Esther does turn a corner here. For the first time, she identifies with her people, the people of God. And in what really is a great way to end a cracking episode of a TV series with the camera panning out, fading to black, at the end of the episode, the sole hope for the Jews lies in the hands of a young lady whose life, up until now, has been devoted to beauty treatments, And the royal bed. Esther chapter four is about a hard, gut-wrenching, confusing, and painful few days for Queen Esther. This has led to a decision, not courageously, but with a shaky resolve to identify as a Jew, uncertain of what will happen, but resolved to die as a person of the covenant of God rather than the Queen of Persia. That's scene one. Scene two begins three days after this, the fast is finished. This is Esther's plan. So she sticks on her royal clothes. She adorns them in chapter 5, verse 1. She walks into the king's hall. The tension's palpable. How is he going to react? Well, by God's grace, he reaches out his gold scepter. Esther touches it, and relief floods her, I'm sure. Success. She touches the. She can have an audience with the king. She's not going to die. Stared by the king's mercy. So what does she say? In verse 4, tells us, or she asks, King... And Haman, and that's very odd that she would ask the very person who's plotting, plotting to kill the Jews, King and Haman, come to a feast, come to a banquet I've prepared for you. And then they agree to it. Haman comes, the king comes, they're pretty happy to go. In 5, in sorry, verses 5 to 8, we were reminded that good food and wine puts people in a good mood. And the king's happy, and he says, Esther, Queen Esther, what is it? I'll give you up to half my kingdom, And again, all Esther says is that if if I find favour, king, please come with Haman to another feast I'm going to prepare tomorrow. This is so confusing. We don't know why she invited them to another banquet. Why didn't she just say it? Something, it's a power play. Some would say it's to create anticipation for the king or that Esther chickens out. But really, we don't actually know why. And they're only guesses. But you know what we do know and we do see is there's a space now of a day. And this delay from Esther, it actually allows Haman to gain the advantage, come up with another devious plan. This is scene three, Haman's plan. Now, Haman in all of this, he's having the time of his life. This is just, he's a pig in mud, right? He, he, he has the best time with the king and the queen having a feast. Then he leaves the mill, happy and high spirits from the wine, and the fact he's had a private meal. But someone soon sours his good mood. He walks past the king's gate. Guess who's there? Mordecai. Haman rage quits, heads home, seething with anger. And to make himself feel better, get this, he decides to self-medicate in the form of a little bit of self-promotion. He decides to invite everyone he knows to his home just to hear how wonderful he is. We laugh at that, it's hilarious. But I'm sure you know how it works, don't you? Haman gives us a window into part of each of our own souls so we can see how ridiculous and sinful that we sometimes are. We might not actually do what Haman does, but if we're honest, we sure would like to at times, and I'm sure maybe we have secretly behind some of our posts, comments, phone calls. But in all of this boasting, he still doesn't, uh, sorry, this still doesn't stop Mordecai eating away at him internally. Right at the end, Mordecai. So his friends propose a solution, build a big pole showing off how great you are and then impale him on it. <laughs> As one commentator says, the size of the pole is in proportion to the measure of his own pride. And at 23 metres high, it certainly is a very large pole. In all of this, by the way, Mordecai, he hasn't a clue what's happening. Blissfully unaware now, tomorrow he's going to face his death. And so we leave chapter 5, like chapter 3, Haman celebrating after planning to kill someone. And right now, if God ever needed to interrupt the drama to show up, here, I think, is a pretty good time. (coughs) We'll get to that. But for now, I want us to reflect on Esther's defining moment for a few moments. How she's caught between the world of the Persian palace and the Jewish world to which she belonged. Here's the thing, I do wonder if some of you here listening today are going through a similar moment in your life, that you too must decide whether you would live and identify with God's people or walk away. For some of you, God has been ordering events in your life, shifting, moving things around in your world, and you suddenly find yourself facing calamity, the pressure of life, or even with your own inner emotional world. And you're so uncertain, just like Esther was. And you're making excuses like Esther did. But you know, like Mordecai said to her, perhaps you have come at your present situation for such a time as this. Meaning, perhaps all that's been happening is so that you would be able to identify as a Jesus follower, like Esther did a Jew. The question Esther had to wrestle with is the same one that you and me need to. Who do you belong to? Who do you identify with? I'm sure that some of you are facing defining moments right now. Decisions to make, confronted with the reality of what's in front of you. And it's hard. You did not imagine life to go this way. I'm sure Esther didn't. I'm sure you've been making excuses why now isn't the right time to follow Jesus, to throw my lot in with him, just like Esther did. Or you're you're not going to take the step of faith that you've been feeling God call you to for months, that you've been watching and listening, and, and here it is right in front of you, and you're not doing it. Because maybe as you look ahead, all you can see is what Esther saw, that belonged to God publicly, to follow him faithfully into this season of new life. That's going to put me under the sentence of death, suffering, humiliation. But you see, identifying yourself As a Jesus, as a Jesus follower, this is to be released from a greater threat than what Esther and Mordecai faced. You see, Mordecai was foggy on who would save. We don't have to be. There is a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul, Jesus, who went to the very heart of the kingdom of heaven and pleaded with you and me, appealing to his own wounds And scars and said to God, the true king, accept my punishment as the payment for their sins. And God accepted it. The harsh reality that we must all be confronted with, like Esther, is that we too are under, under a looming sentence of death, a pandemic that we cannot escape from. All humanity is going to die because of our sin. But your hope can be in Jesus. And as the greater Esther, Jesus did not just say, if I die, he said, I will die. He didn't fumble. He didn't resist the will of God like Esther did. He wasn't foggy or cloudy about the future like Mordecai was. Jesus perfectly obeyed God. He steps into our place. He knows all the areas of life that we are going to go into. He is there. He is shaping events and our life for this moment that we would identify as a follower of him. That we don't have to have it all together. That's okay not to be okay because Jesus is okay. Esther points us to a greater Jesus, Mordecai, a greater Mordecai, with more clarity and certainty than we could ever have, and it's through him. So what would it look like to throw yourself at the feet of Jesus, to give your life to him, in this season of life, right here and now, with what's in front of you? You may need to take a step of faith. It's not a faith that you can manufacture, it's a faith that is given to you by God's grace. Take comfort in that. May you spend every moment this week wrestling with who Jesus is, the faith and the grace that he gives you to be able to stand up in his world, identify as a follower of him, knowing that Jesus goes before you and gives you everything you need to be his own follower. Have a wonderful week, and I'll see you again real soon.